Now, this message is called Seeing God as He Really Is. And um, this is uh, a very special message because hopefully through this message, you'll see God more clearly than maybe you've seen him before. Now, one one of the truths that I have brought consistently in this message is this truth. You cannot get closer to God than your concept of him will allow. You can't. If you do not believe that God loves you, and we're going to read the scripture from Hebrews 4 that says, come boldly before the throne of grace. If you don't believe that God loves you, you're not going to approach him. You're going to stand at a distance. If you believe that God is an impersonal, austere God, you're simply not going to seek a God that you believe that doesn't care about you, a God that you believe is mad at you, an impersonal God. You're just not going to seek that God the same as you would a God that's gracious and merciful and loving. And so you cannot get closer to God than your concept of him will allow. And the purpose of this message is to take all of the filters out, to take everything away that would keep you from understanding who God really is and to give you a personal revelation of who God is. There's a a scripture in the Bible that God reveals himself for who he really is. And we're going to look in depth at that scripture. Let me just begin by saying the Bible tells us God is good. And so, you know, some people doubt that, but God is good. Psalm 86, five for you, Lord are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. Psalm 31. Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. Psalm 33, five, he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Well, that's what the Bible says. The Bible says that all through Old Testament, New Testament. But the Bible also tells us that we're not good. That God is good, but we're not good. We're not inherently good. The rich young ruler came to Jesus one day and he called him good. And Jesus said, let me me correct you there. Don't go around calling people good. Only God is good. Now, Jesus is God and Jesus is good. But what he was saying to the rich young ruler is, don't go around calling people good. Now, listen to me. Are there good people? There are good people in comparison to other people. But compared to God, we're evil. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 11. If you then, being evil, now know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And I'm thinking about the disciples and Jesus said, if you being evil, and they're turning around going, did he just call us evil? You're evil compared to God. The best person on earth is evil in comparison to God. Romans 3.12, they have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is no one who does good, no, not one. Good in comparison to other people. But in comparison to God, we are evil people. We are born into a fallen, sinful state. And our only chance of goodness is God because goodness is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. According to Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So the only chance we have at truly being good is to allow the Lord to fill us. And so you say, well, why is this important? It's because our concept of God is developed more by our parents than anybody. And they're fallen. And compared to God, they're evil. Now listen, listen to this statement. The best parent on earth is evil compared to God. Right? Based on what we just read here, right? If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father? So if you had the best parents on earth and your concept of God is more based on that than anything else, 
They gave you an evil representation of God. Now listen to this. In Genesis 1, 27 and 28, God made man in his image first. He put his image on Adam and Eve. Then he commanded them to multiply. That's a very important sequence there. That Adam and Eve were to be image bearers to their children. That's what parents are. We are image bearers of God to our children. And anything that your parents do right, you naturally attribute to God. And anything that your parents do wrong, you also naturally attribute that to God. Several weeks ago when I was talking about on Father's Day, I talked about a book called Faith of Our Fathers, Paul Vitz, who documents that all famous atheists hate their fathers. The reason that they don't want God to exist is they wish their fathers didn't. And so our parents are image bearers to us. Unfortunately, when Adam and Eve fell, they then portrayed a distorted image to their children. And by Genesis 6, the world was completely corrupted and violent because of the image that they bore to their children. And so we as parents, we're all, and, and by the way, we need to forgive our parents and be very compassionate toward our parents because all of us are in the same boat. We want to do the best we can. We want to be the best parents that we can. But the number one responsibility of a parent is to lead your child into an understanding of God. But the most important thing that a parent does is lead your child into a personal relationship with God so that God can reveal himself for who he really is. And so this, this is in no way a contempt toward parents. It's just the reality. And so in my case, when I was growing up, my dad was very impersonal. Uh, he had absolutely no relationship with me whatsoever, didn't talk, didn't ever come to a ball game, did not involve himself in my life in any way. He worked all the time, was tired when he got home. He was a good provider and a moral man, but just completely impersonal. It was the hardest thing in the world for me to believe that God knew me and cared about me. It was the number one barrier in my relationship with God. And I bless my father. He became a Christian, a great man. He's in heaven. I can't wait to see him, but it's just simply truthful. So the only chance we have at understanding God is a direct revelation. Okay, we need a direct revelation. So we're gonna get it. In Exodus 33, this is, God is at a crossroads in his relationship with Israel. In the chapter before, uh, Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days and Aaron, his brother, and the children of Israel, they thought he had died or something. So they fashioned a golden calf and they began to worship a golden calf and become very immoral. They were partying. And when uh, Moses came down Mount Sinai with the 10 commandments and saw them partying, you know, he threw the commandments at him. And then God said to Moses, I'll, I'll honor my word. I'm going to go ahead and take them into the promised land, but my intimate presence will not be with them because if it was, I would consume them right away. So, so God is frustrated with them. They're frustrated with God. And we're going to look at four stages of Moses' revelation of God. Moses is going to get a direct revelation of who God is because he's struggling. This is stage one, seeing God through the eyes of the past. That we're going to see now Moses is still looking at God through old eyes. Exodus 33, the Lord said to Moses, depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. And I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite, the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I could consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this bad news, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the children of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. I could come up in your midst in one moment and consume you. Now, therefore, take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Now, 
God and Moses and the children of Israel uh, and God have not gotten along since the day they met. When God came to Moses and called him to be the deliverer of Israel, Moses said no. He resisted. He said, and, and ultimately, his brother Aaron had to go with him to speak for him, even though Aaron did not speak for him, and Aaron was the one who fashioned the golden calf. But God got frustrated. God got angry with uh, Moses because he wouldn't circumcise his son. And Moses and God have got this back and forth going on. There's a frustration between them. The children of Israel have accused God since the day they left Egypt of bringing them into the wilderness to kill them. Every time there's not water, every time there's not food, every time there's some kind of an enemy or a challenge, they say, you didn't want to kill us in Egypt. You brought us out here to kill us. They're constantly mistrusting God. Well, let me talk for just a minute about Moses. Why would Moses have such a struggle in understanding God? Well, it's, who is Moses' father? Well, some Jewish man, because Moses was Jewish. You remember in Exodus 1, uh, a Pharaoh arose who didn't know Joseph. And he became threatened by the Jews, and he commanded that all the male children, the, the male infants being born of the Jews, be drowned in the Nile River. And Moses' mother, when he was born, three months after he was born, she put him in a little uh, reeds with pitch on it and put it in the little boat put it in the Nile River and floated it down the Nile River. And who got it out? Pharaoh's daughter. And she took Moses into Pharaoh's home to be raised. So as far as we know, Moses' father figure was the most, one of the most evil men in the history of the world. He tried to kill him when he was born and he tried to kill him again when he was 40 years old. The gods of Egypt were impersonal gods of vengeance that were to be feared and that you had to sacrifice to save your life. There, there was no concept on the earth of a personal loving God. And remember, the, the Jews didn't have a Bible. There, there was just oral tradition at that point. They knew about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. They didn't know about God. They, they didn't have a comprehension of who God was. So a loving God hears their cries in Egypt sends a deliverer to get them out. And the entire time that he's trying to get them out, he's a, they're accusing him of being evil, accusing him of trying to kill him. And so there's just this back and forth. And God said, you're a stiff-necked people. A lot of the resistance that we have toward what God is doing in our lives is simply we just don't understand his heart. Moses had done more miracles and seen more miracles than any man alive. But he didn't know God. He had seen his power, but he didn't see his heart. So here's stage two of Moses' revelation of God. He's asking for new eyes. Exodus 33. Moses said, please show me your glory. Then God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And so Moses said, show me your glory. Glory is what you're famous for and glory is the essence of your character. And so Moses realizes there's something I'm not seeing right here. So Lord, would you please show me who you are? And God is gonna cause all of his goodness now to pass for Moses. This is stage three, a divine revelation of the goodness of God. And this is the passage that I believe is the passage in scripture that gives a better picture of God than anywhere else in scripture because this is not a man telling us about God. This is God telling us about God. God is going to let all of his goodness pass before Moses and he's gonna proclaim his name. He's gonna tell Moses who he is. Exodus 34, five. 
The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. There are seven things. God reveals himself to Moses, and there are seven things that he reveals about himself, that this is who I am. If you want to understand me, if you want to understand my glory, this is who I am. So let's go through the seven and talk about them. Number one, mercy. I'm merciful. Isn't it interesting? Because last week I was talking about the glory of grace and how grace is the preeminent virtue that God wants to be known for because of all the reasons I talked about last week. He comes to Moses and the first thing he says is, I'm merciful. The word merciful means undeserved compassion that desires to help. God doesn't just see what we are doing. He knows why we are doing it and he wants to help. God understands, he doesn't just see our lives and the things that we're doing right or wrong. He understands the pain of our past. He understands the devil's attacks against us. He understands the corruption of the world around us. He understands our sin nature and fallen and weak flesh. And he understands our lack of understanding and capacity to change on our own. God, he, God is merciful. He's compassionate. So when I was first started pastoring, there was a, there was a man in our church uh, that was uh, weird. <laughs> he was just a weird guy, just a weird dude. And he called himself a prophet and he was not a prophet. Yes, he was P-R-O-F-I-T. He was, and he would go to uh, congregation members and say, the Lord told me you're supposed to give me a thousand dollars. Prophet. Um, so I asked him, he just was weird. He did a lot of other stuff too besides that. He was just a weird guy. So he came in my office. I asked him, to, I want to talk to him one day. And so he came in my office and, and so I had a conversation. It was nice to him, but I just told him, I know what you're doing. I don't want you doing that anymore, blah, blah, blah. So as I'm talking to him and, and correcting him, he's got this weird smile on his face. Just strange, he's smiling at me, you know, because normally that, you don't, people don't smile at you when you talk to him like that. He's a big guy, by the way. And he's smiling at me. And I looked at him and I said, are you okay? And he said, Pastor Jimmy, you know, you know that I have a problem with authority, don't you? I said, yeah, I do. He said, Pastor Jimmy, I had 11 stepfathers. From the time I was born to the time I was 18, my mother married 11 times. And he said, a lot of them beat me and mistreated me. And he said, I learned as a young boy not to trust men in authority. Now, let me say this. He was still weird after that, but <laughs> he, he, he didn't stop being weird. But so here's the difference between Jimmy Evans before and after that conversation. Before that conversation, I would, every single time I saw that guy, I thought to myself, why are you so weird? Every time I saw him after that, I thought to myself, how could he be so normal? You know what I'm saying? We don't know. We don't know what people have been through. God doesn't just look at you and what you're doing right or wrong. He knows. He, he's compassionate. I was over in Addison one day and 
I was driving down Beltline, and you know, there's those medians where they're panhandling out there asking for money. And I keep money in my pocket to give away, and I don't give it away to everybody. I just try to be sensitive to what the Lord says. And I was pulled up to this median, and there was the four or five people in the median asking for money. One of them was a girl. She had her back turned to me, and I, you know, I was just kind of not paying attention. And she turned around, and she was pregnant. And it, it was not, this was not my reaction. I believe it was God's reaction. My heart broke. And so I, I took out $100 out of my wallet, and I rolled down my window, and she walked over, and I handed it out the window. And when she grabbed it, she yelled. When she saw it was $100, she went, oh! She started crying. She said, I can go get a room and sleep. She looked terrible. She just, mm, you know. I'm evil. I'm an evil man compared to Jesus. It, it was like I saw my daughter or my granddaughters out there on that meeting that day. Our God is a merciful God. He's, there, there was no concept of that. No, no concept. If you grew up in a family, there was just not sympathy. There was just not mercy. It, there was no compassion. Sometimes you can think God's like that. This is the first thing that God says about himself. Moses said, would you give me new eyes? Would you let me see your glory? God says, yes, Moses, I'm merciful. The reason that you guys struggle with me so much is because you don't understand my heart. I'm a loving God. God understands you and he cares. This is Hebrews 4. Seeing then that we have a, high, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And I told you the word boldly there means frank speech. It means honesty. You can say anything to him. He knows and he cares. He's merciful. The second thing that God says about himself is gracious. Grace means free help on every level that is granted without merit or performance. An acronym for grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Mercy is not giving you what you deserve based on compassion. Grace is giving you everything that you don't deserve based on grace and not merit. So God is a God of grace. And so mercy is God's emotional disposition toward us. Grace is what God is willing to do for us because of his compassion and mercy for us. And so 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. So God is able to make all grace abound to you. Well, what does that mean? Well, let me talk about some different types of grace. So we're all weak and we're all frail and we all have flesh. And I'll talk about that more next week. Let me talk about different kinds of mental, mental grace. John 16, 13, Jesus says this, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will lead you into all truth. We all have weak minds that, that have difficulty comprehending things. Did you know that the Holy Spirit will help you understand anything? He'll give you mental grace. If there's something, when Karen and I, our marriage was on the verge of, of failing, and I, Karen, I told Karen to leave, and I went to the living room, and I said, Holy Spirit, teach me how to be a husband. Because I don't know. He taught me how to be a husband. He can teach you trigonometry. He can teach you astrophysics. He can teach you to cook, some of you. Uh, 
not me. There's nothing he, he knows. He knows everything. Physical grace. If the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, this is Romans 8, 11, If the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he'll give life to your mortal body. You know the way that that's written? If he can resurrect Jesus, you think any of your problems are a trick for him? That's the way that's written. Physical grace, emotional grace, love, joy, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He will give you his personality if you'll just ask for it. We don't, we don't have the emotional capacity to love and live and have the feelings we ought to feel within ourselves. It's a gift from God. It's a gift of grace. Spiritual grace, Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Power. He'll give you spiritual power to overcome the devil, to understand God, to live for God, to do the works of God. Financial grace, 2 Corinthians 9.8. The context of 2 Corinthians is money. Paul is taking an offering from the Corinthians and that's where he says God is able to make all grace abound toward you. He'll give you financial grace. But there is one condition of grace. I told you this last week. Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For by grace you have saved through faith. Faith does not mean believing. Faith means acting. It doesn't matter what you believe if you don't act on it. If you will step out and just simply begin believing that your God and your father is merciful and gracious and try to, ba- try to break his bank. Just keep asking, Lord, I need this grace. I need this grace. I need-. He, loves it. he loves being a daddy. He loves being a daddy. More than any other father or mother loves being a parent, our God identifies himself as a parent. And he loves it. Number three. Long-suffering. God is willing to suffer greatly for a very long period of time for us and not give up or get angry. Hebrews 13, 5. He himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. On your worst day, God is your best friend. And when everybody else walks away, he'll still be standing. God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And what that, when God says never, he means never. When people say never, sometimes they change their mind. God never changes his mind. He's not frustrated with you. The day you got saved, he knew you were a long project. He's not surprised. He's not surprised. Number four, abounding in goodness. God is always good in every situation and circumstance. He has no bad days and no bad moods. And if you're raised in a moody environment, sometimes you think God's schizo. And sometimes he's good. God's always good. Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not disaster. To give you a future and a hope. Every thought that God has toward you is good. And God's not good when you're good. God's good when you're bad. It's not dependent on any man or anything else. Number five, abounding in truth. God never lies, deceives, deceives, breaks promises, or in any way misrepresents himself in dealing with a person. God not only, not only tells the truth, he is the truth. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away. My word will never pass away. He will never break a promise to you. He will never in any way misrepresent himself to you. Number six, he's forgiving. God is always peace-seeking and willing to forgive even the worst of circumstances 
And afterward, keep no record of wrong. Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times do I forgive my brother? Seven, probably one of the other disciples was on his nerves, you know, and he was up to seven. And Jesus says 70 times seven. It means you always forgive. Psalm 103, listen to this one. Verse 12, as far as the east, from, east is from the west so far, he has removed our transgressions from us as a father pities his children. So the Lord pities those who fear him. He knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. He's a father. He, he forgives. Just. The last one. God has rules and there are consequences for us and those around us when we break them. But even when we break God's rules, he loves us and his discipline in our lives is motivated by his love for our good, uh, by his love and for our good. Hebrews 12. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not chasten? But if you're without chastening, of which we've all become partakers then you're illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? So God does discipline, but it's always motivated by love. Now for people who are unbelievers, there's eternal justice. And God will make sure in eternity that all sin and all evil is paid for. But us as believers, he's always forgiving. So let me, let me review here. God, Moses says to God, would you show me who you really are? God says, certainly, I'll I'll cause all all my goodness to pass before you. Merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness, abounding in truth, forgiving and just. That's your God. Did you notice that abounding in truth and just are just two out of seven? But the other five are merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and forgiving. If you saw God for who he really was, it just simply would change everything. There wouldn't be anything standing between you and him. If you can only get as close to God as your concept of him would allow, if that was your concept of God, you would live in his lap. You would never hesitate relating to God on that. So I'm gonna personalize this. This is, I've written this. I've taken everything I just said and written a letter to you from God. And this is me writing this. But I believe that it represents the heart of God. So if you want to, you can... Receive this as God's letter to you. Dear child, I realize you've had a difficult time understanding who I am because of mistakes your parents made, as well as the negative influence the fallen world around you has had has had on you. So I want to tell you firsthand who I really am so you can understand me and relate with me intimately as your father and best friend. First of all, I am very compassionate towards you. I don't just see what you're doing. I know why you're doing it and that you can't change without my help. I can also see what the devil is doing to attack you as he is trying to defeat you. I see what others have done to you in your past and even now. I wish you would understand that I don't stand back and judge you. I want to be in your life helping you because I love you so much. I also want you to know that my help is free. You don't have to deserve any of it. My son died on the cross to pay for all of your sins so that you can relate to me without merit or performance. My throne is the throne of grace and all you have to do is believe in my love and ask for my help and it will be given to you generously in every area. I will never desert you under any circumstances. I will be with you forever and will never reject you. I am good natured and never change. I am never in a bad mood or have a bad day. I am the most consistent person you will ever know. You can trust me. I will always be good to you because I am overflowing with goodness that I want to share with you. My plan for your life is good and that will never change. 
I will never lie to you, deceive you, trick you, withhold information from you, or break a promise. I will always relate to you based on the truth. When you fail, I will always forgive you and totally remove your sin from the record. My grace is greater than all of your sins combined, past, present, and future. And my mercy toward you is renewed every day. As your father, I have rules that are there for the purpose of protecting you and causing you to grow as a person and as a believer. If you violate my rules, I will deal with you graciously, even as I discipline you at times. My correction is motivated by my love for you. Never interpret my correction as anger or rejection. I love you too much to allow you to damage yourself or others without attempting to help you and get you to a better place. I love you more than you can know in this life. My desire is to reveal my love to you personally every day. Child, believe these words for they are true. Act upon them as you pray to me and believe me for the mercy and grace you need every day. And I will reveal myself to you in a new way. Signed, your loving father. You obey like that. And I truly believe that represents the heart of God. And so this is stage four the final stage with Moses. And after this is over with, immediately following God's revelation of who he is to Moses, three things have changed with Moses. The first is his worship has changed. Exodus 34, eight, as soon as this is over, Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth in worship. If you could see God for who he really was, you would immediately begin to worship. Listen, you wouldn't worship because it's the right thing to do. You wouldn't worship to get brownie points with God or to perform for his favor, you would worship because you would be in awe of him and you would love him. Our worship is totally based on who we believe God is. If you don't know God, you don't worship. If you know God is a performing kind of a God, you worship for brownie points or for performance. But when you really, really, truly see God for who he really is, you just want to worship him. It's just the most natural thing. The second thing, that, and this is, by the way, the first time that Moses has ever worshipped in this way. His self-worth has changed. The second thing, Exodus 34, 9. He said, if I have now found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my, uh, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. He, he is saying here, even though God has said you're a stiff-necked people, God says, I want you to go with us. I don't want you to stay back. And I want you to receive us as your inheritance. Listen, your self-worth will dramatically change when you see God for who he really is. We're teaching an entire generation of young people that they evolved from monkeys. How do you you derive any self-worth when you came from an accident and you're going to an accident? And there's nothing in any way sacred about your life. But when you see God for who he really is, you'll see yourself reflected through his eyes. And you'll understand you are something else. You were made by the hand of God. You're not just a blob of flesh. You are the image of almighty God. And when you see God, you'll see yourself and it'll change everything. And number three, his witnesses changed, Exodus 34, 29. It was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand, when he came down from the mountain that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone when he talked to him. Moses had already been up on the mountain and down from the mountain. His face did not shine. The first time he came down, his face did not shine because he didn't know God. Now his face is shining. He has seen God. It's changed his witness. When I first became a Christian, I'll, I'll just say, I was kind of ashamed 
of Jesus a little bit. And when people would ask me if I was a Christian, I'd say, yeah, but I, I felt timid about that because I didn't know God and I didn't, I didn't know how to respond at that point in time. Over the years, as my concept of God developed and I began to see God for who he really is, let, let me tell you how I feel about it today. I am so proud of God. I'm just proud of it. I want everybody to know about my God. When, if you don't know God, you can't help but to show other people that you really don't know God and you don't want to talk about it. Or if you do, it's just coming out of works or legalism or whatever. But when you really know Jesus, I want every person to know my God. Because I'm so proud of him. I, I tell God, I'm, pride is a sin in many ways, but you can be proud of God. Hate is wrong, but you can hate the devil. Pride is wrong, but you can sure be proud of God. And I'm more proud of God than anything in my life. Because of who, there's no one like our God. There's no one like our God. No one like our God. And so I, I, want, I want to pray, but listen, we, I want to disassociate the people of our past. Moms and dads, pastors, authority figures, whoever it might have been that skewed and put a filter upon the way we see God we're going, to disassociate, we're going to forgive them, we're going to disassociate, and we're going to ask God to give us a, a personal revelation of who he is.